when someone tells you a great life-changing truth, how do you respond? Do you immediately apply that truth in your life? Or are you initially skeptical and reject it? Or are there other factors that affect how you view this truth ongoing and determine how you will act on it? Let me give you an example. Let's say someone who's lost 50 pounds tells you that there's a new revolutionary exercise regimen guaranteed to make you lose five pounds a week. But it is only offered at a health club, a gym, inside one particular mall. With this life-changing truth, what will you do? Well, some of you may ignore it and say, well, I've heard these claims before. It's not true. And so we disregard it. Others, perhaps, are excited since this news comes from a credible source, one who himself has lost 50 pounds. And so you are all in as you go quickly to sign up for this exercise regimen program and even apply for a gym membership. Still others are initially excited, but on the third or fourth week, their motivation wanes because parking at the mall is a hassle and the traffic to get there to the gym and park is heavy throughout the day. And yet there are still others who, while they are willing to endure the parking situation and the traffic hassles of getting to the mall, as they walk to the gym, on the way there, there are many yummy bakeries and restaurants before they get to the gym, and then they lose, as they pass by those restaurants, all motivation to go to the gym and instead enjoy wonderful food at one of those cafes. Put yourself in this situation, which of these scenarios would you see yourself in? In the wider context, in the more important context, how do you personally respond to life-changing truth, especially truth from God's Word? This is what we want to take a look at this morning as we continue our sermon series entitled Masterclass, Learning Important Life Lessons Through the Parables of Jesus. How we respond to truth is an important life lesson for us because when we are exposed to truth, there needs to be a proper response or else it will lead to failure in life. When the life-changing truth of the gospel message and its many implications throughout scriptures have been told to us and taught to us, how do we receive it and how do we respond? I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to the gospel of Luke. We're at chapter 8 as we take a look at verses 4 to 15. Luke chapter 8, verses 4 to 15, as we take a look and study the parable of the sower this morning. And we will learn the lessons of how to respond to truth. The parable begins with a background verse in verse 4 of Luke chapter 8. And when a great multitude had gathered... And they came to Jesus from every city. He spoke by a parable. You see, this takes place in the early part of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee. At this point, he was drawing huge crowds to come hear him speak. Some were coming to see the show. They were looking forward to a miracle. But in this particular incident, it takes place while they are gathered specifically by the shores of the Sea of Galilee. The corresponding passage in Matthew 13 tells us that Jesus was sitting in a boat 
very close to the shore while the rest of the crowds were listening, standing along Galilee's shore. And he begins his sermon with this parable, verse 5 to 8. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside. It was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I'm sure some of you are very familiar with this parable. It is a parable where there's a farmer, a sower, who is sowing seeds or dropping seeds on the ground as he prepares for a harvest. The seeds which he drops falls on four types of ground which will yield very different results. The first scenario is seeds that fall by the wayside or the road and the people step on it and then the birds eat the seeds. The second type of soil is a rocky type of soil, the Bible tells us, without much moisture. And so the seed that drops into this soil initially grew, but then it soon dies because of a lack of water. The third type of soil is a soil full of weeds and thorns, and the seeds fall into this, and it also initially grows, but it dies because the thorns edge it out. And in the final scenario, some seeds fall onto good soil, neither rocky nor full of thorns, and the seed germinated and it sprouted and it grew and grew, and it generated a great harvest. Now, if you heard that story from Jesus being one who stood by the shores of the Galilee, I think it would be very odd for you to hear a story like the one Jesus just told, especially without any explanation. Some of you may be thinking, why in the world is he teaching a farming story? Those who are there may wonder, this doesn't resonate with us. This was probably a bunch of fishermen or from a fishing community that surrounded the Galilee, the people who made up this group were. And so naturally, some people were confused. Even his own close disciples were confused. Verse 9, then his disciples asked Jesus, saying, what does this parable mean? Jesus' response in verse 10, and Jesus said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may not see, and hearing, they may not understand. Jesus says, I speak in parables because those who are really interested to learn and those who really desire to understand the truth of these stories will take the time to comprehend and learn. Others who are there gathered only for the show or perhaps to hear a funny story from Jesus, they don't really care to make the special extra effort to try to understand something. And so they were not going to get it. They would not benefit from the truth of this parable. It is not that Jesus is hiding truth from them. He is seeing who is going to make the special effort to further study and comprehend, to try to understand what Jesus is trying to say. Similarly, in our context today, that's why there are some, when they come to church, they always walk away feeling blessed. 
they get a lot out of it. It's because they come prepared to learn. They have their Bibles, they have their notes and pens. They're ready to learn and they're ready to be challenged. And then there are those who are simply at church to fulfill an obligation. They don't even look at their Bibles when the verses are being read. And they leave learning very little. And then they wonder, why don't they get anything out of church? It's about the attitude. Jesus says to the disciples, I speak in parables so that those who seek in earnest will learn the great spiritual life-changing truth that these lessons bring. And those who don't care, well, they don't learn and they don't benefit. You see, there were many people who were following Jesus in that time with differing motivations. They all heard God's revealed truth, and but yet their responses would be varied. Jesus wanted to illustrate from this parable that there are various responses to truth so that when you bring forth the truth of the gospel to the world, you will not be surprised by how the world responds. But more personally, how do you respond to truth? Jesus will lay out the options. How should you respond to truth to receive the most benefit from it? What is our proper response? Now, by way of a side note, before we dig into the explanation of this parable by Jesus, remember that when we interpret parables, it is a story with only one moral lesson. It is a story with one emphasis. And the point of this parable by Jesus is to illustrate the various reactions of people when they receive truth. It is not teaching about the great theology of salvation. It is not teaching whether one people one group of people are saved and not. It's not teaching whether one will lose salvation or not. And I have to mention this because many people often misinterpret this parable thinking it teaches that one can lose their salvation if they backslide or reject the truth after they have accepted it. That is not the point of Jesus in this parable. What is he trying to teach? Look at verse 11. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Jesus explains to his disciples the truth of this parable. The sower in the parable is Jesus. The sower can also be any disciples, it could be us today, who sows the seed of the good news of Jesus Christ. The seed represents the word of God, the truth of God. And when the truth of God from the scriptures is given to the world, it will be received very differently. The four different types of ground representing the four types of reception to the truth of God's word. Look at verse 12, the first response. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. If you remember, the first type of soil was by the wayside, perhaps on the roadway. Here the seeds are stepped on by the people, indicating complete disdain and rejecting of the truth. They don't even want to hear it out. They just step on it. And then once it's been stepped on, the birds come and eat it up. And so there are no more seeds. Again, this shows that the truth of 
the word of God never takes hold in that person's life. There's a rejection of truth. This is sad because verse 12 tells us that the power of God's truth has the power to save, lest they should believe and be saved. This is a message that is a good one. It's a message that will save you, but yet it is still rejected. Add to that the fact that the devil himself works in opposition to the work of God. The devil is out there trying to sow seeds of lies and doubts so that people of this world will reject this message of truth that saves. We're also reminded of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, where it tells us that the God of this age, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the unbeliever, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. Listen carefully. I know you know this, but you need to be reminded of this. Satan does not want people to know the truth of God's word and the salvation it brings. Why? Because Satan is going to be punished forever in the lake of fire. Satan has lost. He knows of his own demise. He knows the scriptures. He has read the book of the Revelation. And he knows he's going to the lake of fire. And his philosophy, his life's purpose, his desire is to take down as many people with him as possible and to take them to the lake of fire. That is the pure evil of Satan. And that's why Satan has created the world system. The world system created by him is to spread lies to people to reject God's truth. The world system is set up to take people down. And yet the sad part, especially Christians, is that we're so attached to the world system, a very system set up by Satan to take us down. But yet we're attached to it. We love it. We are drawn to it. This is the truth. The devil himself works in opposition that's why when we give truth and we want someone to accept the truth of God, it must come with lots of prayers because there is an unseen spiritual battle waging in the cosmic spiritual realm that we can't see, but it's there. Now, some of you may read this verse and think that people's unbelief is Satan's fault. But I want you to understand something. One's rejection and ignoring of truth is their own fault. Satan works to encourage you to reject truth, but ultimately it is still your choice to reject or accept truth. For example, if someone offers me a free ticket to Hong Kong, if I only go to our, a particular office to pick up those free tickets, I'm sure if I ask some friends and family, should I go? It seems too good to be true. I think most everyone would advise me, don't go, it's a scam. Nothing's free in life. Don't go. You're wasting your time. But what if that offer is indeed legitimate? And one of your friends come back, uh, comes back and says, Hey, I went to the office. I got a free ticket. They're out now. Too bad you didn't avail of it. Whose fault is it for you not going? It's your fault. 
It's not your family's fault. It's not your friend's fault. They gave their opinion. But at the end of the day, it is still your choice to accept or reject the truth that has been given you. And so, likewise, Satan whispers into the ears of lots of unbelievers, telling them that salvation being free is, is too good to be true. He whispers lies and he says, it's too easy to believe in a Savior that dies in your place and you don't have to do anything other than to believe. It's too easy. You need to work towards your salvation because you did what was wrong and therefore you need to right the wrong. So be good. He whispers the lies and he tells the lies that you can somehow offset your bad works with good works, although the truth is you know you can't. So he spreads the lie of being good, and that's how you save yourself. But if you believe this, and you go to hell after this life is over, you can't blame Satan. There is no one to blame but yourself. There are many who reject and ignore the truth of God. Aided by the convincing of the devil, they will not experience salvation. You see, sadly, the first response to truth, number one, is simply the rejection of truth. Rejection of truth. When you reject the truth of God's word, you will not be saved. That is what the Bible clearly states. Now the second response in verse 13, look with me. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The second type of soil was a rocky soil. And the Bible tells us the seed fell into it. But because, as verse 6 says, there was very little moisture, the seed grew a little, but that growth didn't last very long and it withered and died. Verse 13 tells us that this soil represents people who do initially accept the truth of God's word. In fact, they are excited with joy. Verse 13, they receive the word with joy. But that joy somehow dies out and they don't dig deeper into the truth of God's word. Their faith was an inch deep without the water of nourishment. They were not able to establish deep roots. And so when challenges arose, they fell away. You can say that they didn't make any effort to be properly discipled to learn and to grow in their faith. Now again, the issue is not whether this person is saved or not. Some in this situation could indeed be saved. Some in this situation could not be saved. That's not the point of this parable. Jesus never said they lost their salvation. Jesus is simply showing that there is a second response to truth, number two. And that is that there is acceptance of truth until challenges arises. Acceptance of truth until challenges arises. Their acceptance of truth in Jesus was shallow. And therefore, when challenges, adversities, and even differing truths came out, they no longer believed in the real truth because their faith in the real truth was not strong. It was never rooted and it was not grounded. We see a lot of this situation when young people grew up in the church. They even went to a Christian school for high school, and they go off to college. While they were young, they were exposed to the truth of Jesus. They believed him. 
They were exposed to the life-changing principles of scriptures, and they took it at face value. But they never understood the reason for why they believed what they believed, only that they were excited about believing and going to heaven, and it was cool, it was exciting to be a Christian. And then they go off to college, and they are challenged with worldviews that are not their own. They don't know how to respond. They don't know how to answer. And so they wilt without the proper grounding. They are exposed to very eloquent, very intelligent, very bright professors who are engaging and they are convinced that belief in the Bible is stupid and that religion is only for uneducated people, people to look for a glimmer of hope in an otherwise hopeless situation. And they come to the mind that it must be crazy that there is a God who can create this world in six days when supposed scientific evidence proves otherwise. As I reflect upon my two decades of ministry, one of the saddest moments early in my ministry is of knowing a former student who was very, very bright, very intelligent, very close to me, loved Jesus and was passionate for him in high school. So intelligent that this student was given an opportunity, full scholarship, to go abroad to get masteral and doctoral studies. The student is currently teaching at a very prestigious university in America today. But a few years back, came back and visited me and told me, Pastor, I know it will break your heart, but I need to let you know that I'm now an atheist. I've been convinced by science that belief in the truth of the scripture is ridiculous. It was then that I reflected upon my own teaching ministry and I wondered where I'd failed along the way. Maybe it's because I was spoon-feeding them information. And so I began to change my own style of teaching to get people to think for themselves, to critically think through one's faith, to be able to defend it. I just came back from a, a grade 12 retreat. In the workshop I was given, I taught them how they could critically think through their faith. I taught them that with a simple high school science principle, you can stand up to any scientist with a PhD from Harvard or Stanford to get them to admit that evolution is only a theory. It is not established fact. I wonder, could you do that? Would you, who are believers deep in the faith, would you wilt or would you be able to stand strong if you were to challenge a scientist with a PhD in neurosciences from MIT or astrophysics from UCLA, would you be able to defend your belief that it was God who created the heavens and the earth? And to do so with simply using high school science. Sometimes I wonder if we have equipped our people properly and that's on the church but perhaps the issue is not the church itself. The issue is with the individual who does not make the effort 
to want to know how to defend their own faith, to know the reasons for why we believe what we believe. Our faith is not a dumb faith. It is a faith that is foundationed on facts. The Word of God is truth, and therefore that truth has multiple evidences for why it is truth. And yes, we have young people today who are very discerning, and they're able to hold their own against professors with unbiblical worldviews. But the sad part is many still do not make a concerted effort to own their own faith, to allow their faith to take root. Parents, I'm speaking to you. You yourself have to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. You should encourage your children to ask hard questions about your faith. And you, not the pastor, should be able to answer those questions. And that's in addition to living a life that is Christ-like so that you are not demonstrating a life that is hypocritical. Because if you keep saying, I don't know, to your children's spiritual question, or even defer it to the pastor, then listen carefully. Do not be surprised if your children walk away from your Christian faith when they are older, because they will wonder, why should I believe in the faith of my parents when they don't even know the reason why they believe what they believe? Does that make sense? And yet so many parents given the responsibility by God to have children, do not take the responsibility of digging deeper into the truth of their own faith so that they can be able to explain why they believe what they believe. Encourage your children to talk about spiritual things. And if you don't know the answer, it's okay. Learn together. If not we will lose a generation who will walk away from the faith because they think that our faith is a blind faith. And that is what verse 13 is talking about. When challenges arise, a faith that is not rooted withers away. Now sometimes the challenge is not an opposing worldview or you're ridiculed for believing what you believe. But that challenge comes in the form of trials and adversities in life. Sometimes deep persecution of your faith by your unbelieving family or friends. Or perhaps it happens when you lose a job. You don't get a business deal you work so hard to get. You don't get that promotion. You don't get into the school of your dream. And so in the little understanding of the truth of God's word, you're no longer excited about God and His Word. You think, I don't want to believe in God anymore. He isn't a loving God. He, he doesn't give me what I want. Why isn't God like a genie who, who grants me all of, our, uh, all of my heart's desire? That's, that's what God is supposed to be for me if He's loving and caring and gracious. Why is my life seemingly worse now as a Christian than when it was as an unbeliever? You see, a lot of people have this notion that once I become a Christian, all of my problems go away. My life is suddenly successful. But it doesn't seem to be the case. And so, I don't want this faith anymore. It is because we have a very shallow understanding of who God is. We never grew in our depth of faith. 
And so we misapply and misunderstand his salvation and grace. And sadly, so many who accept God's word as truth initially have lost their faith as, as these life challenges come and they fall away because they didn't make the effort to root down their faith. The third response to truth, verse 14. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. The third response to truth is pictured by these seeds that fell into soil full of weeds and thorns is that the seeds initially germinated and grew but the thorns choked out the sapling and it soon dies. Verse 14 tells us that these thorns and weeds represent the distractions of the world. How it's defined? Money, pleasures of life, even relationships that take away our heart from the person of Jesus and the truth that he speaks in the Bible. How many times when I see young men and young women, they're courting one another, and one is an unbeliever, and they tell me, Pastor, it's okay. Through this relationship, I hope to bring my unbelieving girlfriend or boyfriend to come to know Jesus. Let me tell you what, the sad reality in the vast majority of the time, in relationships such as that, it is the unbeliever who draws the person away from Christ versus the believer drawing the unbeliever to Christ. Why? Because relationships, money, pleasures in life, all of these thorns begin to crowd into our life that we no longer have the same passion for the truth of God's word as we once did. Again, verse 14, it's not an issue about whether they're saved or not. Some could be saved, some could not be saved. But that initial faith in Jesus Christ is now gone because other things have taken the attention and the heart of the person. You see, the third response to truth, number three, is that there is acceptance of truth until worldly distractions take our heart. Acceptance of truth until worldly distractions take our heart. We see this a lot, especially in our culture. People are on fire for the Lord. They have a sincere faith. But then they are in the working world. They are in college. They have children. Their family begins to grow. And the many distractions begin to slowly pull us away from Christ. The pursuit of money. The pursuit of a relationship. The pursuit of position, the pursuit of the pleasures of life, these things the Bible tells us at the end of verse 14 prevent the maturing of our fruit in Christ. You see, every true believer will bear fruit. Some of the fruit is seen and some of it is unseen. Fruits that are visible are because that faith has matured. But there are some fruit trees that are still fruit trees, but they don't bear any fruit for a wide variety of reasons. And that's what being, is being pictured here. In this case, that initial faith in Christ does not lend itself to maturity because of the factors of worldly distractions. And we see this happening all the time. And it's not to knock our young people, but when they were young, they grew up in the church, they were excited about the faith. But now as they enter adulthood, they are 40s, 50s, 60s. 
They no longer see the importance of faith in their life. They are adults now, and you know some of them. You grew up in church with them, but they have no interest in any spiritual things. And you reach out to them, you call them up, hey, we'd love for you to come to church. Let's fellowship together. And they give excuses that they don't have time. And they can't do this or do that because of this situation and that situation. The reality is, in most of those cases, it's not because they don't have time. It's because they don't want to put in the effort and the priority to come to church. You know, it's interesting. People tell me, Pastor, I can't come to church because I'm in med school. And the demands of med school prevent me from coming to church. And I know med school can be very demanding. But yet then why is it that we have med students coming to church? How can one come but the other not come? It's, it's all about the effort. There are those who tell me, oh, Pastor, we can't come to church because we have young babies at home. We just had a child. And I know how hard it was without a yaya to have uh, a young little baby. And yet when you look around, there are a lot of young babies in our church today. How is it that some can come and some cannot come, both not having any helpers? It boils down to effort and priority. I've seen couples who have young babies and the alternate weeks. That's wonderful. You see the heart of effort. But those who say they can't come, you see on social media that they are going abroad alone with their babies. They can do that. They're able to go to the malls every Sunday. But yet it's still too hard to come to church to worship. And then there are those who tell me, Pastor, your church is too far. We can't go to church And yet we have people coming as far north as Pampanga and as far south as Cainta every week. And they only live in Quezon City. How can they not come? It's all about priorities. But our faith almost always loses out to the draws of the world. Do you hear that? Our faith, sadly, almost always Lose us out to the draws of the world. I see it in the prayer requests that I get. People ask me to pray for their children, and I gladly do so. They ask me to pray that their child would do well and get good grades. They ask that their child would pass a board exam. They pray that their child would get a great job. That's the vast majority of the prayer requests that I get for one's children. It is a rarity that I get a prayer request from a parent for a child to be faithful in their spiritual walk with God. Or that, Pastor, would you pray that my child would see no professional success that will take him away from his dependence on God. And so you wonder... What is of importance to a parent? What is the priority of one's life? And yet Jesus has very clearly stated that worldly distractions pull at our hearts and they take us away from the acceptance of truth. Jesus early on knew that our faith will almost always lose out to the draw of the world. He needed the busyness of life 
would draw us away. And that's why he presents this scenario. There's a fable, uh, a story, it's not true, but it tells of three apprentice devils who are coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. This is an illustration, and so the first little devil, they were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to ruin men. The first little devil said, I will tell them there is no God. Satan says, that won't work, that won't delude many, for they know that there is a God. The second little devil said, I will tell men there is no hell. Satan answered, you will deceive no one that way. Mankind knows that there is punishment for sin. The third devil, perhaps wiser, said, I know what. I will give men lots of fun things to do. Satan says, go. You will ruin them by the thousands. That is the danger of being too busy. Satan draws us away from our faith by giving us a lot of fun things to do. Events to go to. Things to do. So that we get trapped in the busyness of life. That our willingness to serve God wanes. Our desire to reach the lost, to grow in the faith is lost in the other priorities of our life. And so, we fall into that trap. You know, it's interesting. I read a study uh, about church attendance in cities around the world. And it's interesting. The survey said that Church attendance is highest in cities that are boring. Church attendance is lowest in cities that have a lot of things to do. On the list of fun cities with little church attendance, I saw the cities of San Francisco and Vancouver. So I called my pastor friends who are pastoring in those cities and asked them, is it really that tough? How hard is it to get people to come to church? He said, Pastor, you won't believe it. The one in Vancouver said, Pastor, you know, it's only 30 minutes to the mountains. They can go skiing in the winter. They can go hiking in the summer. They can go off-road biking almost the whole year. Beautiful waterfalls, beautiful hikes just 30 minutes away. And if they don't like the mountains, they can go 30 minutes or even less and go to the beach. And there they can enjoy fishing and boating and sailing and just lounge there and in the city great food cool vibe a lot of things to do great open markets beautiful weather and he says I'm competing against all those things to get them to come to church it's true in San Francisco it's true in New York and other fun cities then I thought about Metro Manila. It's two and a half hours to the nicest beach that's swimmable. The mountains, sadly, that are about an hour away are nothing that spectacular. And yet, why is it so hard for people to come to church? Our trap, I think, is the busyness of social events. The obligation to go to so many birthday parties, to go to so many anniversary events, to go to so many events that if we don't go to these 
things like associations and other things that somehow we don't go, we will offend someone else. All right? We don't go because we will offend. And yet we never think to realize that if we don't worship God, would we offend Him? But it's okay that we offend God, but it's not okay that we offend our family and friends. That's for you to go home and think through. Someone after the Saturday evening service said, well, pastor, should we then not have fun? I said, no. What I'm calling for is a life of balance. You see, there must be balance in one's life. Go, have fun, enjoy. But ensure that as you are enjoying your life, make sure that you have put in the effort and the time for the study of God's Word and the application of it, lest you be like this seed that falls into a thorn-filled soil where then the priorities of your fun life begin to crowd into your life where everything is a priority except the worship of God and the study of His Word. I better stop or we'll convict too many people. Let's move on, verse 15. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the Word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. The Bible tells us there is a fourth type of soil where the seed falls into and it lands upon, quote-unquote, good ground. And in this good soil, it allows the seed to grow and, and, and flourish and yield a great harvest. Now, now, what exactly is the good ground? What does it look like? Verse 15 describes it as one with a noble and good heart, bearing fruit with patience. Let's unpack this. A person whose heart represents good soil that will take truth and allow it to flourish is a person that is, the Bible says, noble with a good heart. That means a person that is honest. A noble heart, an honest heart. And a noble heart and an honest heart is a heart of character, a person with a good character. For a person who is noble and of good character, he does not lie to himself. He does not make excuses for himself. He is keenly aware of the time he has put into the study of God's Word and the accepting and the understanding of truth. In fact, Matthew 13, 23, the corresponding parable in a different gospel says that this person understands the Word or takes time to understand. One allows the maturing of his faith when he is noble and honest, does not lie to himself, and knows how much time I've put in to the study and the application of God's Word. You know, it's funny, when I ask people about certain things, they can tell me everything about a certain subject. Like talking to young people, want to find out what's, what's cool and hip. And so, you know, with Captain Marvel coming out, you can ask a young person, they can tell you every backstory of almost every character in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU. They know about every creature and every realm in this galactic fight. I'm thoroughly confused by the Krees and the Skrulls, but who knows what. They know about the different ages and Tolkien's Lord of the Rings and who falls in which age. 
They know the various realms and the various complex alliances in these games of throne kingdoms. And yet, they're all fiction. But you know them so well, you can quote me names and dates that are fake. But then you ask them some simple doctrinal question about the Bible, and they're utterly clueless. Because they haven't taken the time to learn. Not because they, their minds can't comprehend it, but the effort to go beyond a simple faith is simply not there. And these people are dishonest with themselves. They are not noble. Because if you say you believe in something, you better know why you believe in what you believe. That is what a noble heart looks like when you do the right thing and put in that time. I like the word patience here at the end of verse 15. Because it is a reminder that the maturity of a person's life takes time. The maturing process is a process. It's not overnight. It takes time to memorize scripture. It takes time to study God's word. It requires effort so that truth can be understood and lived out. If those gathered along the Galilean shore simply heard the parable of the sower and they left with a question mark, why is Jesus teaching us about farming? We know about this. They would walk away and not receive any benefit from this parable with such great truth. But if they were like the disciples and they went up to Jesus after his sermon and said, Jesus, would you explain more about what you mean? I think Jesus would gladly do so, and he does. There are such wonderful spiritual truths to unpack. So it is as you patiently live out the process of your faith. You see, for truth to take root and flourish, it requires number four. The acceptance of truth and then the faithfulness to live it out. The acceptance of truth and then faithfully living out. You and I can accept truth, but then you must apply with a noble heart, true to yourself, in your character to faithfully live it out. That faithfulness to learn as a lifelong learner, to search one's heart, and then to apply the truths of Scripture. From this parable, we see how people respond to truth. But it is also a picture for how you and I are to respond to truth. It is a truth that leads to salvation. It is the truth from the Word of God that brings satisfaction to our life. It is a truth that gives purpose to it. It is a truth that will quell our unsure hearts. It is a truth that is indeed life-changing. My friends, how do you respond to truth? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, this parable, so simple yet so profound. We acknowledge it is true because for many of us, the distractions of this world and the adversities of life pull us away from knowing your word more and applying in our lives. Father, I pray that we would all have a noble heart, a heart that is true, knowing that we can't trick you. The effort and time we put in 
to the study of your word and the living it out, the living out of it, will evidence itself in the fruits that come out of our life. Father, I pray this morning that this will be a church that is indicative of good soil. That the men and women that make up this church are men and women with a noble heart, patiently waiting for the harvest in their life as they crave the word of God, as they put in the effort to know it more. Pray that our parents and our grandparents will set the example for their children and grandchildren to know the word so that our children and our grandchildren will not walk away from the faith that we have because they have personalized it. They see how important it is to us. Bless those who are in college today that they would not be swayed by an eloquent professor or succumb to the lies of Satan. Pray for those who are in the working world, whatever age, that they will not get sucked up into the corporate rat race where position and salary is significant and worth that they would understand that work is an opportunity where they can minister. And so, Lord, however you speak into the lives of these men and women this morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work to challenge them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.